So it has been a little while. I can't even remember when I started these three parables. It was going to be close to six months ago. So as a way of reveal, um, look all the way at chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. This is where it all starts. This is where the parables, the sequences begin. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That is, Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3, So he told them a parable. And then verse 8, Or what woman? He begins another parable. And then verse 11, And he said. So he tells these all in a sequence. And it all stems from that question or that uh, phrase, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus basically is telling them, yes, that is exactly what I do. I came to call sinners to repentance. Again, you have the parable of the sheep. A sheep was lost and is found. You have the parable of the coin. It was lost and is found. Then we looked at the parable of the prodigal son. And we looked at the first verses there, verses 11 through 19, and we saw him the reckless to the point of repentance, right? He had to get to his lowest of lows, that is the younger son. And when his younger son was there at his lowest point, uh, then he remembered his father and he goes to his father. And then we looked at the father and his response to this, right? The father ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him. He brings him back into fellowship with himself. It was a reunion to rejoice. Uh, He gives him his ring. He gives him his robe. He puts sandals on his feet because he's not going to be seen as a slave. He is a son. So he graciously brings his son back into the fold. And because of this, we'll pick up, he says in verse 23, It says, And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. And that's where we're going to pick up today, right? So now they're in this point of celebration. And actually, when you think about it, if this parable stopped there, it would very closely resemble, it still resembles the other parables, but it would almost match the other parables completely. There was something that was lost, and this point is his son, uh, and it is found again, and they celebrate. That is the pattern that is continual. And when you think about the parable of the prodigal son, it's very interesting, because we call it the parable of the prodigal son, and I don't actually, I call it that for ease, because we're used to it, but that's really not a good name for this. Because often we just think of the prodigal son. I think mentally we make this stopping point where we stop there. We see this parable and we think, oh, there was a younger son and he was lost and he was found. Good parable. But that's not where the story ends, the parable. Uh, There's still one more section. And this is the culmination of everything before it. Uh, This is the last point. This is the thing that Jesus wants his audience, his particular audience, to take special note of. And his audience is the Pharisees and the scribes. And as we will see, this older brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes. So everything is culminating to this point right here. And so let's dig right into it. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants, and he asked, 
asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf for him because he has received him back safe and sound. Now we see three things he does here. He draws near, he hears, and he inquires. Right? He draws near. And that's interesting because notice where the older brother is. He's out in the field. Now he's not at the house or at the place where the celebration is happening. He's out working in the field. Now just think about it. Now you have the younger brother who is inside the fold with the father celebrating because he is alive again. And now that older brother that was there is out in the field. And he's looking in at the younger brother and saying, what is happening here? So he draws near and he hears music and dancing. And naturally he's curious. He doesn't go in for himself and check it out. He asks a servant, what is happening here? And the servant tells him, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Just a summary of this very good summary of what happened. And so he inquires on it. And the servant's response, he says, he has received him. That is to literally take back or to recover. That is what the Greek is. Him back. So the older son is clear on what's happening here. That his wayward brother the one who he obviously despises, as we'll look at a little bit later, has returned, and the father is celebrating his return. At this point in time, if you hadn't read the verses following, you would say, well, this brother is obviously going to celebrate. What a momentous occasion, right? I mean, his brother, who was lost in some foreign country, uh, devouring, as he would say, prostitutes, uh, has finally come home. He's finally realized that he needs the Father. Uh, this should be a great time uh, for the older brother. He should be elated that this is happening. This is momentous. And the interesting thing now is he sees this display of grace by the Father, and we get to look at his response to that. And that's the next thing. The resentful perspective. Now we're going to look at what his attitude is, that perspective he has. And the first thing is his heart. Look at his heart. We're going to, verse 28 here. It says, but he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So he's angry about this. He's not happy about this. He is frustrated beyond belief. Actually, this angry is orgizo. Uh, it denotes an upsurging or an impulsive nature, and it usually has a connotation of revenge or punishment. So you get this idea of he is just... <laughs> uh, he can't even handle it. He's just frustrated beyond belief. Uh, he had held in all these emotions for his brother, and this is just the tipping point. I can't believe you would receive him back. And so he refuses to go in. Again, think about that. He was with the father this whole time. He goes out into the field and he sees the grace of his father on his older brother. And now he doesn't want to go in anymore. 
And as I was thinking about how many people are so angry that they refuse to go into the kingdom. And the thing is, the father entreats him. Look, son, <laughs> come on. Your father, your son, other brother was lost and is found. Come in and join the celebration. And that entreated is to urge, implore, exhort, to try to win over, uh, to comfort, to encourage. He's trying to get his son to come in. And this is where we have to make an important point. You may look at the younger son and say, well, he treated the younger son better than the older. Uh, because he ran to the younger son and he kissed him and embraced him. But he does the same thing here with the older son. It's not quite as dramatic, but he still pleads with the older, look, come inside as well and celebrate with us. The father didn't just want the younger son to repent. He wanted both sons to repent. So that's his heart. He was angry, frustrated. And then we're going to look at his works. See, he depended a lot on his works, this older son. He felt he was obedient. It says, he was angry. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. What a brazen thing to say. I never disobeyed your command. Never? Ever? Uh, If you're a father, you probably realize that your kids are going to disobey your command at some point or another. And if you were ever a kid, which I think all of you were, you know that you disobeyed your parents at one point or another. And so what a thing to say. I never disobeyed your commands. And it reminds you, really, it does remind you of a certain people. And I think at this point the Pharisees and the scribes would have started to pick up on what Jesus was laying down, so to speak. Uh, go to verse uh, chapter 18 in Luke. We're going to verse 9 here. Chapter 18, verse 9 says, He also told a parable, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and entreated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Notice what the Pharisee in this parable is saying. I thank God I am not like the other man. I give tithes. I do this. I fast twice a week. I do that. It was all about what they did. And it is those works which they thought would save them. It's very interesting because they followed the law. They taught the law. And the law should have showed them that they can't work their way there. And instead they saw it and said, I am going to work my way to heaven. For them it had somehow the opposite effect and they trusted in themselves. 
instead of God. And so he says, I have never disobeyed your commands, right? That is what the Pharisees would have said. I have kept the law. But he also is committed, and he says, these many years I have served you. He was in it for the long haul. And that word served is very interesting. It's actually uh, slave. He was a slave. That is, um, he served as a slave. And it's not the normal. Pious is the normal. In verse 26, it says, uh, he called one of the servants as pious. It's used with the normal relationship of a slave and a master. Uh, this is dualos. The term con, uh, denotes a compulsory service in slavery, that he is forced to do this. Look, I have served as a slave to you. I've been a slave. I am enslaved to you these many years. Again, let's turn to Romans. Romans 9.30. It's amazing when you look at the older brother. He really does perfectly um, show the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes. Romans 9.30, it says, What shall we say then, that, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if based on works. That is exactly what this older brother was thinking as well. Look, I am going to be saved by works. I'm going to get into a relationship with my father through works, the things I do, because I have never disobeyed and I have served. Again, you could look at chapter 10, verse 2. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Right? That's them, based on work, seeking uh, their own. And interesting, much like the older brother, they had a zeal, right? He worked. I, don't, I imagine he worked very hard. I'm not saying that. The problem is he worked so hard that he thought those works would get, save him, much like the Pharisees. So he had a heart that was angry. He had his works. He felt like he deserved to be thrown a celebration, and that leads to his resentment. He says, yet you never gave me. It's a very interesting. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. It all boils down to that. Yet you never gave me. See, he felt like he deserved to be celebrated again because of what he did. He clarifies that. I have served you and I have never disobeyed you. And note the relationship to his, I'll say, family here. He doesn't say, oh, Father, 
I have served you many years. He says, look. He doesn't even address his father as father. He just says, look, these many years I've served you. He's frustrated. And even look at what he says to his brother. He says, this son of yours. He can't even call him his brother. This, is, this son of yours came home. The one, you know, who devoured all of your property with prostitutes. And it is even more amply shown in the fact of who he wants to celebrate with, right? He says that I might celebrate with my friends and family. No, he doesn't. He says that I might celebrate with my friends. He doesn't even care to celebrate with his father who is right in front of him or with his brother who has returned. He wants to celebrate with his friends. Does that sound like an older brother who has a relationship with his family? See, there was no relationship there. It was a works-based relationship. See, outwardly, he looks good. You would look at the son throughout these years and say, oh, look at him. He's the one who didn't leave. He's the one who stayed home. He obeys his father. He serves his father. He does all these different things. He's committed. But inwardly, it's a different story. Again, let's turn to Matthew 23. A fairly popular passage. You might recognize it. Where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. Again, we're looking at the Pharisees a lot because this is who Jesus is pointing to. This is what the older brother is representing here. And he's doing his woes. And we're going to pick up at verse 25. And it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And he goes on. But just take a good glance at this. You clean the outside, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 25 and verse 27. Outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. Verse 30 uh, is the same, right? If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part. Look, we would have done better than those before us because we are so much better than they are. Does that remind you of the older brother who is doing all these things and saying, look, I have done these things. I've never disobeyed. I have served you. Look, I am clean. I deserve to be celebrated. See, he's dirty on the inside. He's greedy. He's self-indulgent. But outwardly, he looked good. 
until this point in time. Again, they felt like they deserved the kingdom. And that leaves, leads us to us. Our wrong perspective. It's interesting, I was listening to a sermon by Vody Bakum, and he points out the fact that often we can look more like the older son than the younger son. Because we want to be the younger son, right? I mean, sure, he did sin, and we will all admit that we sin a lot, and we get to our lowest lows. But look, we're the ones who are saved by grace, and we're in the arms of our Father. And this is true. Um, But sadly, often, our humanness comes out, and we look a lot like the older brother. See, on the outside, we can do all the right things. We'll go to church, we'll read the Word, we'll serve, we'll use our gifts, we'll pray. And these things are all good. We want to do these things. But inwardly, it's a different story. On the inside, we can have a heart that has become filthy with resentment. I actually found this funny little illustration. It says, a Sunday school teacher had done a good piece of teaching in her class of boys, explaining the hard heart of the Pharisees, looking at Luke uh, 18, as we did. It says, What a thing for a man to say, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. This surely was no attitude for any, uh, any uh, boy to have. <clears throat> uh, at the close of the lesson, she had the youngsters lead in a short prayer. And one boy, without any apparent beating on his own chest, prayed, We thank thee, God, that we are not like the Pharisee. (laughs) Uh, It's a funny little story, but I think often we do that in our own life. Uh, See, we can be like that older son and look around and think, That person doesn't deserve that. Look at all the things he's done. I deserve that. I'm the one who reads the word, I go to church, I serve. We feel like we deserve things. And, you know, another example is you might drive around an old car, an old beater. I've always, well, usually had a nice car, but I used to drive around in this minivan. It was like my family's minivan. You know, it really went through the ringer. It was like way above 200,000 miles by the time I got it, and it was rusty. It was a bucket of, you know, trash. But So you drive around, and you see a nice car, and you think, wow, what a nice car. I kind of want that car. That would be a nice car to have. In fact, I feel like I kind of deserve that car. I've been pretty good. I've done all these things. God, why can't I have a nice car like that? You see what we do? We quickly go from thinking that's a nice car to thinking, well, I deserve that car because of all the things that I've done. You might say, well, that's not me. Well, here's more examples. Maybe you want a new boat. (laughs) You see someone else with a nice boat. You say, look, I kind of deserve a nice boat like that. I work hard. I do all the right things. Go to church or serve. God, why can't I just enjoy a nice boat? Maybe more seriously, you're a couple buying a house, right? And you're a couple that you did all the right things. You did it as God would want. And you kept your relationship pure. And you got married. And you try to keep your relationship focused on Him. And you're looking to buy a house. 
and it doesn't seem to happen, and when it doesn't happen, you say, why can't we just get a house, God? Why won't you let it happen? And you think to yourself, we deserve, if anyone should have a house, if any young couple should get one, it should be us, right? Or even more, maybe you're that same couple and you want a baby. And you say, God, and you try and try and try. You're like, God, why can all these other people seem to have babies and yet I can't? I deserve to have it. Or maybe you're the man who goes to the doctor's office and he goes in and the doctor tells him, hey, look, you have stage four cancer and you're going to die. And the man thinks to himself, of all the people, why me? I serve in the church. I do all these things. I read your word. I pray to you all the time. Why do I have to die? I don't deserve to die. See, all of that stems from the fact of the things we do. And some of those things aren't bad, right? I'm not saying it's bad to buy a nicer car. And I'm not saying it's a terrible thing when some of those things happen in our lives. Um, but to make that switch to say, I deserve, is a whole other thing. See, the older son looked around at all the things the younger brother was getting. He said, I deserve that. Because of all the things I've done. And often we do the same thing. I deserve that because I've done all these different things. See, when you say I deserve, to say I deserve, the problem is we don't see grace. Because once we say I deserve, we deserve it because of all the things that we have done. We need to see grace. So, we need the right perspective. How do we have that right perspective, you might ask? Well, the first thing is we need to acknowledge our position. Look at what the Father says to him back in our text. Uh, He says, And son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. That is what the older that is the perspective that the older son should have had. You are always with me. The privilege that the older son had all these years, he completely missed because he was so jealous of the younger son, so focused on all the things he was doing. And that is much like the um, Pharisees. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 23, when he starts all the woes, he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do what they practice. What a place of privilege. They sit on Moses' seat. They were like the older brother who just didn't get it. They were with the father the whole time. These were those who proclaimed the scriptures. They read the scriptures. They were in the temple. They were always with him. These are God's chosen people doing God's chosen work. But sadly, they had forgotten God. 
The thing is, we need to realize that we are privileged. We don't want to make the same mistake that the Pharisees made. Turn quickly to John 15, 26. There's a lot of places you could turn to for this, but this is one point. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who precedes the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Right? When the Helper comes. Think of how great that is. We take that for granted. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. And where is He? Within us. Uh, we don't just have uh, a temple. We, have, we are the temple. We need to keep that. God is literally always with us. And we are heirs to the kingdom of God. What else could we want? So acknowledge your position. They forgot that they had sat on a seat of privilege. And let's make sure we don't as well. But also acknowledge what you deserve. Back in our text, right? It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. Right? He was dead and lost. Uh, again, we've talked about it quite a bit recently, so I won't belabor it. Uh, Pastor Bill has. But we are dead and lost. Uh, that is, was our position. And that is what we deserved. We always need to remember that. What we deserve is to be dead and lost. Now, that is the whole point of grace. Mercy and grace, right? You didn't get what you deserve, and you got so much more grace than you deserve. When you think about it, no one will go to hell and not deserve it. That's a hard thing to say, but it's true. And honestly, we will go to heaven and get what we don't deserve because of what Christ did. See, he, was, he says it was fitting. The word here, it's necessary or inevitable to celebrate and be glad. When you look at this parable, don't think about it as a parable of a wayward son. Think about it as a parable of two wayward sons and a loving father. See, both of them, at one point, the older son is still on the outside, right? He was in the field. He's looking in at the younger son, who is now celebrating because he sees the grace of God. And the father entreats both of them, come back home. And so you might say, what happens next? Look at this ending. It says, It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost and is found. That's it. It's like, what next? What happens to the older son? We get to a conclusion for the younger son, right? He gets and he celebrates. What about the older son? Does he go back inside? Does he repent? Does he seek forgiveness? Does he stay outside? What does he do? See, Jesus intentionally leaves this out. Because this is now up to the Pharisees and the scribes. 
They're the ones who are being represented here. And he's basically saying to them, look, what are you going to do? Right? You've seen the grace that's displayed on the younger son. You are the older son. What now? Sadly, we know what they decide to do. We celebrated it not too long ago. They end up crucifying him. They rejected him. They stayed out in the field working because that's what they thought they could do to earn their repentance. So the question is, what's your perspective? Something we have to ask ourselves. Do you feel like you deserve something because of something for the things you've done? Or do you see the grace of God? And so we've heard the reported party. You have seen the resentful perspective, what it looks like, and the right perspective. What perspective will we have? Will you see the place of iron in which you now reside, saved by grace and dwelled by the Spirit, heirs to the kingdom of God, with a kingdom-focused mind, running the race with endurance, an Olympian motto? Or will you be resentful looking around at what everyone else has in this world and saying, I deserve that? Let's live as those who are alive, right? Those who have been saved by grace. And with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to come together to look at your word. I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the guidance we need to really apply this to our lives, to think about your grace that you have given us, how you have saved us. Um, not giving us what we deserve, but giving us so much more than we could ever know. I pray that we would always keep that in the forefront of our minds as we go out into the world and proclaim your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.